Welcome to My Hard Drive Diet, episode number five with Scott Moulton. Hello, Scott. Thanks for joining us again. Hi. How you doing? Very good. And Scott is from MyHardDriveDiet.com. You should definitely check out that site. He is a hard drive expert, has his own hard drive recovery company, and, foren- and does uh, hard drive forensics work. And um, he's going to enlighten us today. The, the, the subject we're going to cover is overwritten hard drives is, is the subject for today. And I guess, Scott, the, the, what, I'd like to start this off by talking about the story from the, the computer forensics show, the keynote speaker from techfusion.com. There's been some news about him and his speech he, he had some things to say about overwritten hard drives and data recovery that wasn't exactly true, or what happened there? Yeah, um, pretty much what happened is the uh, there's this f- show that's put on that's called the Computer Forensic Show, and I guess one of the things that kind of brought this to light was um, this this story that happened in Boston, and uh, and apparently uh, with regards to emails and stuff being deleted, this guy was interviewed and went through this process of uh, you know describing some of the things of how overwritten data can be recovered and things along that line, and. At the same time, he was talking about this case that he had that was in Turkey where you know there was some assassination and that there was this drive that was overwritten and that he actually recovered this data and this valuable data for this for this particular case. And then it somehow became that he was going to do this keynote speech uh, for the computer forensics show. So it all just starts coming to light all at once. But the issue becomes is that his title for his speech is uh, how to recover – you know something along the lines of how to recover – data from an overwritten hard drive. And so uh, all the computer forensics people, because you know, here in the United States, at least with regards to computer forensics people, um, it's, it's a pretty well-known fact from a standpoint of this data that once it's overwritten, especially on a current and modern hard drive, there's not really a way to recover the overwritten data. And so for him to make a, a, a declaration that that is going to be the case and then to be accepted as the keynote speaker where he's going to be subjecting a, uh, a large body of people to this false or fake topic uh, seemed to you know cause a lot of people to kind of you know uh, get up in arms about it. So there's a large, pe- large number of people from the forensics community who got involved. It probably with- probably got a lot of people to go though, didn't it? <laughs> Well, you know, that is another question is that, you know, by having this, you know, false information causing people that, you know, thought, hey, well, I want to know more about this topic, thinking that maybe it's true or not, uh, may have either gone to the computer show expecting that kind of stuff or, you know, paying good money for something that really wasn't a benefit to anybody. Right. Uh, So, so, you know, there's false advertising, false marketing from that position as well. Uh, And there's a lot that has been brought up in question because it's just not the way to, to, proceed, especially with regards to right now, you know, computer forensics as a whole, we have a lot of issues with regards to licensing and marketing and what's true and what's false. And we really don't need to, you know, continue to take myths and try to make those a reality according to TV and stuff. We've got enough, you know, CSI information out there as it is now from TV shows and stuff saying this is going to take 20 minutes. (laughs) Um, We we just don't need more propagation of false information, especially in an arena where people are being taught or supposedly taught correct information as part of their job or part of their future. It's a, that sounds amazing to me that that this whole thing went on. What what was what was he gaining out of this and what did he say about overwritten drives that that wasn't true? 
Well, uh, you know, I was not physically at this uh, this conference itself. I wasn't really going to to join in in the middle of this whole thing. But uh, you know, ultimately, it turns out that even though the title of his talk was about overwritten drives, uh, the feedback that I got from people who were there basically came down to the fact that there was there was no real talk about. Uh, how overwritten data was recovered, and that there was, you know, maybe not even a discussion with regards to recovery of any deleted data whatsoever. <laughs> so, so the whatever the title of his topic was completely misleading. That it had nothing to do with the actual content which he displayed or talked about, and in uh, his, you know, abundance of apparent, you know, forensics cases that he had done. So, but you know, there's a lot of myths with regards to overwritten data, and there's this, you know, mythical magical machine that can recover uh, files and data after they've been overwritten. And there's a lot of things that I kind of want to straighten out for people so that they kind of have a really good idea about the the falsehoods and what this data actually means and what the probability of recovery is, because it's it's just not in the realm of possibility from this discussion. Yeah, I've, I've heard about machines and that kind of thing too early on. And I think it was you who actually disabused me of all those theories I had. It's just, it's, that's just what's out there. That's what people hear. And I don't, how does it get out there? Well, originally, and you got to keep in mind too that when you're dealing with hard drives, you're dealing with with different generations of drives. So, you know, when you're dealing with stuff, say back in the 70s, 80s, and maybe even early 90s, the way that data was written was a lot different than the way it is now. And so, as drives have matured, and we've gotten into higher density drives and more modern algorithms for storing data and encoding the data on the platters, and the way that the tracks are actually stored, even since 2006, has changed dramatically, which is causing even even a larger number of problems with regards to being able to recover this data. But but primarily, it's going to end up being the density and the encoding schemes. So when you're looking at stuff that might have been you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, early 90s, um, you're looking at hard drives that um, one of the biggest changes was something called a voice coil. So in 1986, uh, Connor Peripherals introduced something called a voice coil, and the voice coil uh, basically changed how the physical drive worked. If you think about a hard drive uh, like you do floppies, so back in the day before 1986, drives basically worked fairly similar to floppies did. So right. um, they had a motor, and this motor would say, reset me back to the beginning, and then I'm going to apply a pulse of power so that I can move to a track. So in other words, if I want to go to track five, I would apply a pulse that would cause the motor to cause the head to move five tracks. Okay. And there was no real feedback from the drive that says, I'm at track five. Okay. There was nothing that really gave them a lot of data. You're reading data back in the hopes that what you're reading back is accurate. So there was no what's really called servo information. Servo information is a feedback loop. You actually now will get a feedback that actually says, oh, here I am, and this is something that I can read. Right. So hard drives originally had this same type of technology. It was a, a stepping motor, and it would cause the head to actually move to the correct track. And the problem is, is that the track itself – uh, you may not be writing in a in, – in no hard drive currently even. Are you writing in a complete cylinder? Uh, it's not a perfect circle. So, so there's a spot where maybe the edge of your head was writing data that would not ha- be in exactly the same location next time it would write data. So when you overwrite data, when you overwrite that, that information in that track, you would have this outside edge, this outside skew 
that would actually have data that would be uh, an up and down, a, you know, a, an amount of magnetism that could be detected. And the way you can kind of think of this is, you know, if you had a two-lane highway and you have this dashed line that goes down the center of the road, you have a solid line on one side of the road and a solid line on the other side of the road. And as hard as you try to stay driving down the center of that road with that dashed line, you're not going to be able to. You're going to swerve a little to the left. You're going to swerve a little to the right. Like the shoulder. Like the shoulder of the road, yes. So so in those particular instances, what's happening is the drive may have a little bit of magnetism that was written to that track that's outside of what the normal area is that you're driving down the middle of the road. Right. So that's where things like uh, magnetic microscopes and things like that come into play is that the thought process is you could take this magnetic microscope, which can detect how much magnetism there is in a particular area of one of these tracks, and you could detect that there was a high or a low, that there was data there. It, it's not really a zero or a one. There's no data on the drive that's actually stored as a zero or a one. Like most people seem to have this concept that all the data that's written on a drive is a zero and a one. Yeah. Uh, it's encoded in a format that keeps redundancy and tries to do, do error correction and a number of other things. So there's an encoding scheme that is written to the to the data before the data is written to the drive. So basically okay. it's encoded before it, it, it is slammed onto the platters. Okay. Um, so you have to kind of know not only this process of, of this isn't just a zero or a one, but this is what the encoding scheme is. So you can read back from a particular drive this encoding scheme and say, yes, I, I have a probability that this is a one and a zero, but then we have this other table that we're going to have to use to decode what that content is that's written there. Is this part of the address sector or is this part of the, you know, a, another piece of data that's not related to my actual user data? So it's doable then. You're saying that, that doing it through that method, there is a way to recover data on an overwritten drive? Or? There, there, there are there has been in the past okay. with lower density drives because lower density drives, uh, it is probable that you would at least be able to see something and I maybe see. decode that information. I see. But you're also going to be dealing with a very, very high error rate. Okay. You're going to be dealing with, you know, this is not exactly what I thought it was or some other byte that overwrote that byte might be uh, affecting what you actually see. Right. So you're going to have a tremendous amount of errors. And so you can try to, you know, diminish that by looking at, you know, if you can figure out where the error encoding scheme is and things like that, you might be able to diminish that. But typically you're looking at, even on older hard drives, um, I have heard under certain circumstances that say a 36K JPEG has been recovered, but it took three, three and a half months for them <laughs> to actually read that. Okay. So, so you, you've got a tremendous amount of of time and investment and money that would have to go into this to even get to that on older hard drives. Right. Okay. Get what you're saying now. Right. So, so as we move ahead and you move into higher density hard drives, you're actually moving into uh, a change in how data is written because up until the end of 1999, most data that was written in this, you know, pattern where the data was detected underneath the head. But then we go into a new scheme, which is more related to physics, like how electrons bounce around and how the data is actually stored to cause electrons to bounce around so that the head can detect that there's data there. So that's why most of the, most of the content when people are talking about recovering data from 
an overwritten hard drive, it'll, it'll make a statement from a modern hard drive. Hard drives that have been made in the last 10 years, for the most part, are completely different than what was made before 10 years ago. And that diminishes the plausibility of being able to do this, and even more so since 2006, because we now no longer store data long ways on a platter. We now store data up and down on a platter in what's called a perpendicular recording mechanism. So that data now is even harder to detect, and it's it, it becomes even more implausible because of the increase in density, where you're now talking about you know 500 gigs to two terabytes of information on a drive. So older hard drives, it was maybe possible to get some data off. Now new drives, forget about it. You're right, exactly. Any modern new drive, this magic scheme, I mean, it would even if it was plausible, it would cost so much money and so much time that by the time something was possibly recovered, it would be two or three years out. It would no longer be plausible for it to be usable. Jeez, um, so I mean, we, we run into situations like that now where you know it, it has been known that there might be a, a terrorist event and that there's a hard drive and somebody wants to recover data from it, but it's going to be 18 months before they actually get something that they can read from this drive that's even useful. And by that time, the event may have already occurred or right. something along those lines. So. Right. Uh, but it's it's just not plausible under the current conditions for how data is written uh, for you to have all this information to know the encoding schemes and know this data okay. to know the 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 process by which it can actually be recovered. Well, then okay, well that make that all makes sense. So it's pretty much cut and dry for me. It's pretty much black and white at this point. But so how does this this rumor about the magic machine get out there? Do you have any idea or? Well, there there has been. That you know, talking about a magnetic microscope and how data is is stored on a disk has been has come up in discussions, or or is one of the primary things that you know CIA or some three letter agency is using uh, to try to do uh, some recovery so, or to read some stuff. Okay, so it's the magnetic microscope. Okay, right, a magnetic microscope. There's also a discussion with regards to something called a spin stand, uh, and a spin stand is supposed to be. Um, independent of your current mechanism. In other words, you can take a platter off and you right. can put it on this device and that this device uh, has a very sensitive head and you would probably have to change out the heads according to what type of platter and what kind of disc you're reading. You would still have to know from the raw data that you read back how to decode this data. Um, but there's there's more to it than this. You actually have, let's say there's three platters. Well, data is not comprised of only uh, data that's on the top of one platter or right. the bottom of another platter. There's a chunk of data that's there, but then you also need to compile that with the chunks of data from all the other platters as well. So, so why even have a spin stand? Do they exist? Uh, they do exist. You're they saying? do exist. They uh, they were primarily for testing of devices and equipment ahead of time. So it was primarily not about reading content back that was already formatted on a disk, but uh, prior to uh, that process actually occurring, more for testing and for alignment and for understanding the equipment and gotcha. doing durability tests and things like that gotcha. in order to actually um, make sure that you were up to par and that your quality was what it was supposed to be. Gotcha. Makes uh, sense. Now, you know, one of the things that comes up with regards to this particular discussion, too, is about bad blocks because there, it is possible to erase a disk and to have overwritten the disk but still have data that exists on the disk that wasn't overwritten. That's not the same thing as recovering overwritten data. It's, it's, uh, it has a lot to do with bad block lists and how bad blocks are actually stored on the disk and what data is in those bad blocks. Okay. How, how, can you get into that more? How do you mean? Sure. Um, okay, so as your hard drive is going along, uh, there's, there's two different ways that bad blocks initially work. When you 
when you are first building the drive, when the manufacturer is building the drive, there are spots on the disc that are bad. Okay. And so they go through a process of initializing the disc, and they would find a bad location. Well, in order for bad blocks to, to work while the drive is running, they're going to have to move whatever data you would actually be writing to that location to a reserved area. So there is this defined area on the disc that is a reserved area. And if you have a bad block that occurred, it would have to move the head from that location to the reserved area, read the data, and then come back. So you have a really big performance decrease in how fast your drive is actually going to run depending on how many bad blocks you have. Okay. So the manufacturer decided, well, at the beginning of its life, we will go ahead and initialize this. And instead of having that bad block be, go to the reserved area, we know there's nothing there. So let's just point to the next block and just skip that so right. that the head does not have to reset and go back to the beginning. Right. Um, those things are typically referred to as a P-list. And so the P-list or a P-track would be a track of data or a location of bad data that's uh, a primary list. That means the manufacturer knows that this was bad. They used to print them on the top of the label. You used to actually see them on a drive in the olden days. There would be a label that would say, these are my bad blocks, and they would be printed all over it. Now they don't really do that at all with the current IDE hard drives. They just are able to tell you that my drive is perfect and that there is no bad blocks <laughs> because we've removed them from this table. Um, but then they have to account for, well, what happens if I have a bad block? What if I have a spot that gets bad right. while I'm writing data? So that's actually called the G list. That's called a grown list. So the bad block is manufactured basically during the use of the drive. And that's what gets sent to this redirected area of the drive, someplace else where there's a reserved area of blocks. So what happens is the drive's coming along, it, it's writing data, and this is how it knows that the block is bad, is when it writes the data, it does a comparison with what's called ECC. So it does uh, has a piece of error correction code, and it's going to say, I wrote 512 bytes, here's my ECC, I wrote that data to the drive too. Now let's read that back on the next pass, and let's see if what I wrote was correct. And if what it reads back is false, if it says, oh, ECC didn't match, and I can't, I can't read this data back correctly, it goes... Well, I must have a bad block, but I still have this chunk of data that's in memory. So let's go to the redirected block, and let's write the data to the redirected location, and then we'll just you know, add this other bad block to the list. Right. We'll say, never use me again. <clears throat> and so there's a flag that's set that says, I don't want to use this data again. But the location where that data was written, because it wrote the data, mm -hmm. then it checked it, and it knows that there's actually bad, bad data there, but it never wipes it. It never erases the content that hmm. was written to that block. Whatever that 512 bytes of data is still exists on the drive. Which is it has to be bad in some way. Otherwise, the drive wouldn't have called it a bad block, right? Well, that's true. It does. It is bad. But the, the problem is, well, what if the it was the location where ECC was written? Or what if it was the location? Even even if, um, you know, it's, it's still 512 bytes of possible data that's written there that's right. left alone. Right. And see, what happens is the drive does this unbeknownst to anybody's request. So when you're using Windows and you say, go request a piece of data, the drive goes, hey, I see a bad block and I flagged it. And so no longer go to the original location, go to this new location. So all of your requests are basically uh, redirected by the drive and the drive's electronics. So even when you're overwriting your drive. So let's say you went and you downloaded a program like DBAN, uh, Darx, Book, and Nuke, or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, DBAN will, is a drive eraser program, and it will wipe the drive. And e every request that that software makes, 
is running through the drive's commands, and the drive is redirecting it. So it will never see that data. So that even, was, even Derek's boot and nuke won't get rid of the bad, the data on the bad sectors. Right, that's correct. Uh, almost no software, uh, I don't know of any software that will actually get rid of it. There is there is a ATA command. There is something that's called a secure erase, a secure delete command uh, that's built into the ATA controller and in most hard drives to actually go to those sectors and erase those sectors. Okay. And so, uh, so ultimately, there is a process that you should use to erase these disks if the disk supports it, which most hard drives do. There's a, a few hard drives from 2002 to 2004 uh, some Western Digitals and stuff did not support what's called the secure erase or the secure delete command, uh, but the majority of drives, especially today, support that command, and that will go track by track and sector by sector, and it will ignore the request for it to go to this reallocated area. It will actually overwrite that particular block, that particular track, clearing what's called the G list. Uh, information so that it can't be recovered in the future. But if you're, you know, let's say you're working for, you know, Department of Defense and you wipe a hard drive and you think you can sell that on eBay. Well, if you haven't done it uh, with the secure erase, secure delete, the ATA command set, then there is probably still data on the disk hmm. that can be recovered if you have the right equipment. Okay. Well, what, what I want to ask you is, um, you know, there's this reserve bank you're saying, like if a hard drive encounters a bad block, it writes to the reserve bank. Does it ever run out of room in the reserve bank, or how much space is allocated, or does it is that uh, variable? Or it is uh, it is different per a drive, and yes, it can run out of space. It does have a limited size. Okay. So, in other words, if you have a forty gig drive, they're going to calculate. There's a mathematical process by which they calculate what the percentage of bad blocks is going to be before it's going to die. Okay. And so, they may reserve a thousand blocks or something for a forty gig hard drive. And so, you will, if you have a thousand bad blocks, you will run out of space in this reserve table. And what will and, happen? Um, you know, uh, have you ever seen the smart error that comes up when you first boot your computer and you yeah. get a you get a black screen and it says probable disk error, you're going to die yeah. eventually here or whatever, replace yeah. your drive? Yeah. Um, well, a similar thing happens to the bad block list. It will respond and it will say bad block list table or something like that is full. And typically it will stop operations from the drive working correctly because every time that something happens and there's a bad block or it needs to re redirect it, because if you got a thousand of them, you're probably in fairly bad shape if right. it's a 40 gig hard drive in the okay. first place. It's getting worse as it goes. Does it trip? Um, does it trip smart, or does it just have another air um, type error? It will trip smart. Uh, smart in most cases is you know there's some thresholds and there's some numbers there that if a certain number of them are are bad, that smart will flag it and say this is bad and and to replace your drive or something. But that's if smart is on. Uh, by default, in a lot of hard drives when they come off the shelf, smart may be turned off, and that's not even a function. So for instance, Windows doesn't check that function by default. Right. So you will end up in a situation where, you know, if you haven't rebooted your machine in a long time, you won't know that you have enough of a flag. Smart won't tell you anything. Uh, your BIOS has to enable it and it has to request that information and display it. So there's a couple of steps along the way that you may end up missing it unless you have some program that's checking it. What, what, do, you, what do you recommend? Do you recommend people turn smart on if it's off by default or... Well, smart is a tricky thing with regards to data recovery. The, the reason I say that is that the smart table itself is completely worthless to the drive. It, it, it is a function that can actually cause the drive to fail because of the smart table being corrupt or something like that. So in other words, 
while Smart is writing its data, there is a log file, and it has to go and update this log file. And if something bad happens while it's updating that log file or that location gets corrupt, when your drive starts up and it initializes, it'll read this log table. It will get it'll get data that it's not expecting, and it will fail, and it will cause it to have an exception. So it is plausible that your drive completely stops running just because bad data was written to the Smart table incorrectly. And that's you know that's kind of the gray area you know there's a risk with regards to hey smart tell me whether or not you're running correctly or you know b you know i've got this situation where the drive won't run because the yeah. smart table is corrupt and in data recovery we know it's completely worthless and in most cases um it can cause the drive to die so so it's a normal process for a data recovery guy to initialize the smart log immediately upon receiving a disk and see whether or not the drive will run correctly if the smart table is corrupt or not. Hmm. Does the benefit of having smart on, though, outweigh the, the risk of it crashing your drive? Or, Well, I, I would say yes, it probably does uh, if, if you're getting back proper information. Uh, I think initially smart is fairly broken because I don't know that the thresholds are what they need to be or as low as they need to be. Most drive companies don't want you to know, hey, your drive is going bad because <laughs> you might want a warranty or a replacement. <laughs> so – Damn. You know, I mean, if you really ask people, you say, how many times has Smart warned you that your drive is going to die? And almost nobody, I mean, there'll be a handful of people that will say, I've seen Smart warnings once or twice. But almost everybody will say that they've had at least a hard drive or more than one hard drive fail at right. some point in time. So yeah. so it just seems like the numbers, uh, according to what the manufacturer says failures for drives are, are much, much lower than what is reality. Hmm. Reality seems to be a much higher number for device failures uh, without Smart even giving you the proper feedback. Okay. Yeah, I was curious about that because I, I I used Smart when I was at my shop. I'd, I'd see a lot of drives that with Smart that were, was tripped, and um, I thought it was a reliable way of basically saying, okay, you need a new drive. But well, it's it's basically just keeping track of the the you know there's a certain amount of content in the drive that the drive knows about. It knows about its temperature. It knows about how many blocks it's written that are bad. It knows a, a basic amount of information with regards to errors. And so, if it is tripped, it is a really good uh, suggestion to change your drive. So, I would certainly recommend that if you end up seeing a situation where your your numbers are higher than they should be or your threshold is too high, okay. um, it does indicate that there is some upcoming error that will probably happen. But you know, the other side of that is too is that it's completely possible to have a drive failure and never have seen a smart error. <laughs> Pretty cool. All right, so um, I guess back on the subject of overwritten drives, um, how can you properly overwrite current hard drives? Well, the the main thing would be um, if you have a hard drive that you want to overwrite is uh, the Center for um, Magnetic Recording and Research. It's basically a there's a this, there's a place that has been doing research with regards to what needs to happen for securely erasing a disk. And so the Center for Magnetic Research and Recording uh, has a program, basically. It's not a program that the software is dependent upon writing, like uh, like Boot and Nuke or something like that actually requires it to pass through the processor, make a request to your drive, read that back, and then and then actually overwrite the data. The program that they're using from the Center for Magnetic Recording and Research is erasing the sectors based on an ATA command. So the software, once it initializes and talks to the hardware, talks to the motherboard, and talks to the hard drive, it will cause the uh, the ATA command to erase the drive track by track. 
So I highly recommend somebody looking at this particular utility uh, written by Gordon Hughes. And there are other ways to actually start this process, this ATA command, without using his utility. Right. But uh, his utility was the, you know, it was based on the very first request that he made for changes to the ATA command set. So there's two changes to the ATA command set to allow you to overwrite hard drives. And one was done in 2001, and the other one was done in 2005. And so there's two different ways in which Secure Erase actually erases these bad blocks and the pattern and verification that it actually does. But that is the most secure way, and it is the only way without special equipment to erase these bad blocks from the hard drive and do what's called a, a DOD sanitation um, it actually meets the standards for sanitation for erasing a drive, which is the 5220 standard for sanitation. So that's the easiest and most uh, thorough way of erasing your drive. But it does depend upon your hard drive being connected directly to your motherboard. Uh, the ATA command set is only implemented when you're talking through the ATA chip itself. And your problem is going to be if you have it plugged in over USB or something like that, you're not going to be able to erase these external drives because there's not a full implementation of the ATA command set through USB. Hmm. So you will have to take this drive and plug it directly into a motherboard in order to make it erase the drive correctly. I see. Huh. Um, I, I have a bunch of drives that are, are left over from uh, when I sold my shop that I want to uh, eliminate the data 100% so I can dispose of the drive. Would you recommend like shooting like a screw, like drilling a screw through the platters, or would you recommend doing a software type of erase? Well, uh, I would certainly say if you have the possibility of using a software type of erase, that at least then it would be plausible, especially if you're, or if you're using this ATA command set to erase it, that it'd be plausible that you can use it again. Uh, even if you're using just software like a uh, boot and nuke, yeah. you are getting rid of what the common person can actually recover. Uh, it will it will require a very expensive piece of equipment to recover the content from the bad block right. list anyway. So uh, so I would still recommend that because you can put it back in use. Now sometimes people ask, well, what if I just go and use um, you know what we used to use for our cassette tapes and things like that, where you can <laughs> demagnetize the drive right. and uh, and basically use a degausser to erase the content from the drive. And the issue is is that if you are able to do that, your drive will no longer function. If your drive still functions after you've done the degaussing, then you were not successful. The reason is is that the data that's on the drive in what's called the system area is necessary for the drive to come up and spin, and that's stored magnetically. So if you degauss your drive, it is you know more than likely you're actually going to be dragging the heads into the platters and breaking heads and scratching platters anyway. But if uh, if you degauss the drive and you power it on and it still initializes, comes up and you can format the drive, then there's something wrong because that area of where the magnetism was that actually stored the data in the system area should have been erased also. So which, when you degauss a drive, just make sure it doesn't start. It should not start again. That okay. should be the end of that drive, which would be the same as if I took the pliers out and sanded them down or I you know, hit them with a baseball bat or you know, <laughs> ran over them with my car. Right. Um, right. You, you can pick one of any, you know, put it in a microwave. But uh, <laughs> you can pick one of any of those choices, but you know, your results should still be the same. The drive should be not functioning. You can drill a hole through it. You can you know, put screws in it or whatever, and it will certainly deter uh, the common person from being able to recover the data from it. Gotcha. We should do a series of shows on how to destroy a drive and just have <laughs> little. Oh, try to shotgun approach, <laughs> and, you know, take it to the range, shoot a hole in it. Seriously, yeah. that would be fun. 
we've got to yeah, do that. Right. <laughs> All right. Now, I, you told me here in uh, in this email you sent me that you've actually reviewed certified hard drives that were stated that they were overwritten, but you were still able to recover data from them. Yeah. The uh, now I don't want to you know mess this up. You know, saying that I'm able to recover data from overwritten hard drives like we <laughs> talked about in the beginning. Right. Um, but what ends up happening is I go and I look at this bad block list. That's the very first thing. If somebody sends me a hard drive and they say, you know, this is certified to be erased, well, the very first thing that I will do is I will take a look at the drive in a hex editor, and uh, there are certain programs where you can say, um, only show me the bytes that are not zero. And so if you're able to do that, you can actually see if, hey, I overwrote it with zeros, what kind of data do I have? And if you have one byte that still exists, then that program did not do its job correctly. But let's assume that it, it did its job correctly and all of those bytes are zero. I could go and hook this up to a special piece of equipment. I could clear this bad block list. And once the list is cleared, then I have access to those bad blocks that's still on the drive. And then I can do the same process. I can say, you know, here, Hex Editor, show me all the bytes that are not zero. And it will go and collect all those together, and you'll be able to see data in those locations huh, in the bad that blocks previously was thought yeah and some of it will be some of it will be text some of it will be a name of a document some of it will be you know who knows it could be a password and so it's still plausible that if the if you know these certified drives were not done correctly that the data may still be there and the client just isn't aware of it All right well what's the special piece of equipment that you hook it up to um, there's two or three of them. Basically, you're dealing with firmware, um, but there's uh, three or four different main pieces of equipment. One is called the PC3000, which is a very expensive piece of equipment that can talk to the firmware, clear these G-lists, and deal with those G-lists. Um, another one's called an Atola Insight. There is a, a set from a company called Salvation Data that's called the uh, Hard Drive Doctor Suite. Hmm. Um, uh, th- those are the main three ones that I know of that actually can deal with firmware from a drive and clear these G-lists. Um, there is a tool made by CPR Tools. Uh, it's called the Cyclone, and they have a special piece of software that actually will copy the G-list from certain hard drives like Mac stores and things like that, that they will actually be able to, while you're out in the field, cloning the hard drive, hit a button, and then re- and actually copy these bad block sectors from the drive uh, purposely without clearing this G-list. Huh. All right. Well, that answers the question about the device. And uh, speaking of devices, we also talked about this a little earlier. I mean, if somebody um, at home wanted to get into this, I know you teach classes. I heard you have like a class in a box type of product. Um, How could somebody learn how to do this and how could they get the equipment, the right equipment to do this type of thing? Well, uh, I do teach a class. So I, I do teach a class through SANS. Um, and it's a it's a fairly expensive class, but it, it moves around all over the country, and now we're going to start going uh, uh, outside of the country. But you're right, I do have a class in a box. So what happened, um, I have put together a package that has all the tools that we actually use in the class. Uh, so it's got the bench kit and all the things for platter removal and for fixing fixing the device and things like that all in one box. And then I actually have a 500-gig hard drive that ships with it that has – um, has videos, has a copy of my class, actually recorded in the class, and then there's an additional set of you know another hundred videos or so that I've made of how to do head replacements and how to fix a drive and how to go through that. And so I sell it all as one giant class in a box on myharddrivedied.com. And so if uh, anybody's interested in learning that and kind of get into the data recovery profession, 
it's one of the only pieces of information out there that's published that actually walks you through how to repair a hard drive and, and to get into the business and start doing it either on your own or, or as a way to make money. That sounds really cool. Where did you get that at myharddrivedie.com? Is there a special yes. link? Yeah, uh, myharddrivedie.com, and there is a classes link. And so when you go through the classes link, there will be a link for uh, a, a class in a box, basically, called the distance learning class. Cool. Well, that sounds great. Um, let's see. Hang on one second, Scott. Okay, Scott, one last question. We, I'd like to go over this again just a little bit because I still get people asking me about this and I still hear things about it. Um, putting a hard drive in the freezer. Now, last time like last time I talked to you, I was expecting you to give me an answer like that's never, ever do it. It's the dumbest thing you could possibly do, but it might have some legitimacy to it. Well, it, uh, it does. It is legitimate. It is not a myth. It will, in many cases, fix a hard drive depending on the type of problem that it is. Uh, so, so the way that this is, the way it works is basically, um, and there's no real firm explanation. Nobody, no scientist has come out and said this is why it works or why it doesn't. Right. Um, it's it is not the best thing to do for the drive, obviously, because if there is some problem, there probably is a scientific reason that you're having a problem. So sometimes, with the complexity of what a hard drive is, changing the temperature or changing the conditions will cause it to work differently. So what ends up happening is, let's say you have a situation where the head got stuck to the platter and that the drive isn't moving. Maybe by uh, exposing that to a colder temperature causes the metal and, and the glass to contract, pulling the head away, then allowing it to turn. Or even with electronics per se, uh, let's say um, a chip has become very hot and now it kind of changed the direction or how it was actually sitting on the board and that maybe a connector popped off and it's no longer connecting to that location and that by causing the temperature change it might cause it to contract and then touches the correct location or uh, so there may be a number of different things with regards to that but you know if you just think about it in terms of you know anytime you put metal or electronics in a refrigerated or a, a frozen compartment you're going to be causing all these temperature changes to all the equipment around it hmm. so it's uh it's it's you know it's a lot like a car i mean some cars won't start in cold weather they're right. actually you know meant to start in in our current conditions right. but if you take a car to some place that it hasn't been prepared for so if i take you know a car to i don't know uh you know a high mountain in colorado the uh, air pressure and the and the air itself may cause it to function differently hmm. than it does when it's you know at sea level. Right, and that's the same kind of thing that happens with hard drives. Now, it is going to cause some possible damage to the drive. It is probably not going to work for a really long time. Uh, so, in other words, if you are able to get a drive to spin up, and that was your last resort, it was the last chance that you had at getting this data without sending it to some you know you know two thousand dollar company or something. Right. Um, then you're not going to have a lot of time once you get it hooked up. So you should go after the files that are the most important thing right away. So if you get it plugged into your system and it mounts, go for that My Documents folder, go for those pictures, go for what you need to because you may only have 10 minutes before this thing dies and never comes back again. Good tip. And what about for uh, condensation? Should they put it in a bag or something, I guess? Um, it certainly would help at least to be in a Ziploc bag or something, but you'll still typically get some condensation just from the changes in temperature when you expose it. Right. Uh, so you take something that's cold and you put it in a hot area. 
it, it is typically going to happen. Um, you can probably get the same effect without going straight to a freezing temperature. That you can probably get a similar effect by hitting it around 40 degrees or so, which is usually what you're going to have if you just put it in the refrigerator. It'll just take longer for it to reach that temperature. So you might want to just put it in the refrigerator and leave it there for 24 hours and then come back and try it as opposed to freezing it <laughs> right. and, uh, and causing such an extreme change. Um, you certainly can always put it in the freezer afterwards if you've already you know gone to the refrigerator, but you can't usually get back uh, from the damage that you've already caused with condensation or gotcha. you know even the electronics getting fried. Gotcha. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, by freezing anything, you're basically moving the parts in it just a slight tiny bit. So, you know, that's all you're doing with the temperature change. You're causing parts to move. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna. I mean, there's always a lot with regards to. Uh, temperature. I mean, it's one of the reasons that, you know, even, you know, superconductors and stuff have to operate at a very cold temperature. So there's a number of different things that would actually cause um, it to operate differently at a different temperature. Um, There's there's one chip that is uh, particular that's on the um, actuator arm of the hard drive that's called the preamp. And this preamp has a tendency to either get damaged or to pop off depending on how it's connected to the board. And it's a it's a common event that maybe you know the read write heads or something on a hard drive might be able to actually work better after the after that chip is cooled down. Hmm. So, yeah, I've I've had it work um, for one machine, but like you said, it only it only worked for a little bit, and then the, see, I had a problem where the hard drive kept turning off, and it was definitely seemed like it was heat related, and just just having the drive run at a cooler temperature was enough for me to get the data off, and then you know it definitely conked after it warmed up again. But that's just one of the ways. But that's, I mean, that's probably got to be one of the biggest questions about hard drives that you run into at this whole freezer thing. But yeah, there's a there's one thing that I do that's not as extreme as freezing it or something that might might help you out that you can actually do that's fairly cheap for listeners at home and stuff too is um, usually at you know Fry's or your local computer store or Micro Center or wherever they have these uh, they have these kind of they're almost like toys they're like heat up your glass or cool down your glass yeah. with the USB. So it's a USB cooler and things like that. And they have the little ones that look like refrigerators. Right. Well, those work off of a, a special type of ceramic that when power is applied to them, causes one side to become very, very cold and one side to become very, very hot as it basically uh, forces the heat through the ceramic out to the other side. Huh. And uh, those devices, uh, those the chips that are in those, the ceramic chips themselves, can be used to cool a hard drive very quickly and keep it cold while it's running. Wow. So what I will do in a lot of cases, I'll take um, like an aluminum bay, a, you know, aluminum drive bay, and I'll put the drive in it. And then I'll take one or two of these ceramic items, which, you know, they're already wired for USB. So that makes it really easy for the computer from that standpoint. You just plug it into a USB. Right. It, it gets its 5 volts from 5 and 12 volts from the USB connector, and then will cause this thing to become ice cold in a minute. So if you turn off your drive and you hook up, say, two of these, um, you have to usually peel off the label so you have good uh, connectivity between the metal itself. And you hook up two of these, uh, usually in a couple of minutes, that drive is going to reach 30, 40 degrees, and it will stay there. Uh, it won't stay that low, but as soon as you turn it on and it starts to work, you may be able to keep it at, say, 70 degrees or something while it's operating. Hmm. And you might get a lot better result. I've been known to get uh, complete recovery done, uh, being able to image the drive and everything just by keeping it cold. 
doing something like that. So those so, little things do serve a purpose. It's yeah, they're. I mean, they're <laughs> great from that standpoint. And uh, I mean, like Fry's had some on clearance a couple of weeks ago for seven dollars, and you can probably find you know cheap ones or something for under twenty bucks. But they, you know, temperature makes such a big difference that if you can keep a drive cold while it's running, there's a high probability that you're actually going to get some some contact. But and it, it sometimes works the other way as well, right. so that sometimes heating up a chip actually calls it to respond differently, and that sometimes heat actually helps you in your recovery. Hmm. Cool stuff. Well, thanks for the tips. Uh, you're going to be speaking somewhere soon, right? Yeah, um, I'm on my way to Louisville. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at an InfoSec conference, which is in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it's on Thursday. So Thursday the 8th, uh, which is the day after tomorrow, I'll be speaking uh, on advanced data recovery techniques, basically, at the Louisville InfoSec, uh, which will be at uh, Churchill da- Churchill Downs. So if uh, anybody's looking forward to going there, I think it's a one-day event. There's going to be a, a, a whole slew of speakers for that day. But uh, you can go to louisvilleinfosec.com. It's uh, L-O-U-I-S-V-I-L-L-E, infosec.com. And you can find out all the details about it then. Definitely go to the website, check it out. If you're in the area, go see Scott. Um, still waiting for you to come around this area, Scott. Well, I would love to. Uh, I'm sure that someday it will be on my list of things to do. <laughs> Philadelphia. We'll see. We don't get too much cool tech stuff out here. It's a shame. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's going to wrap up today's episode of My Hard Drive Died. Thanks again very much, Scott, for the great information. Anytime. I'm happy to do it. And uh, I'll talk to you next month. Great. Thanks. And for those of you who haven't yet, make sure you check out the PodNuts official laptop repair video collection. If you ever wanted to repair laptops, this is the way to go. It is at laptoprepairvideos.com. Thanks.